Hey everyone, welcome to Brain Health with Dr. Nissen. In this show, we explore the universe's great unknown, the human brain. In my reflections and interviews with guests, we'll go to the forefront of psychiatry, neuroscience, nutrition, and medicine to see how we can enhance our mental health, sharpen our cognition, and reach better performance. This is Brain Health, and I'm Dr. Nissen. Let's dive right in. All right. Good morning. I'm here with Dr. Martha Stark, and we are here to discuss uh, a bit about stress and anxiety um, in the context of mental health, how it is that we are often talking about stress and anxiety in a way that, uh, that, that makes it seem like it's a terrible thing that needs to be avoided. I think today will be a really uh, empowering conversation with Dr. Stark to really explore how it is that, uh, that we can think about stress in a different way to help us to achieve greater things and to suffer less from anxiety and stress. So without further ado, here's Dr. Martha Stark. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Nick. Thank you for having me. Of course. And, and actually, um, there are two concepts that I've been working with over the course of the decades that I've been developing. One is the concept of relentless hope. Uh, in essence, not all hope is good. Mm. Relentless hope, not so much. Mm. The other concept is stress. Not all stress is bad. Mm. In fact, optimal stress, just the right mix of challenge and support can sometimes be the very thing that will advance the patient from illness to wellness. And I talk about uh, that advancement as involving healing cycles of disruption in reaction to uh, challenge, mm -hmm. and then repair in response to support from the, from the therapist, and by tapping into the patient's underlying resilience and innate capacity to self-correct in the face of optimal challenge. And mm -hmm. so the, the thought here is that optimal stress provides both impetus and opportunity mm. for advancing the patient from illness or psychological rigidity mm. to wellness or psychological flexibility. And more particularly, I write about, and I think later we'll be talking a little more about my psychodynamic synergy paradigm, but that's a story about advancing the patient from defense, rigid defense, to adaptation, mm -hmm. flexible adaptation. So from rigidity to flexibility by way of the cutting edge of working at, working at the cutting edge of optimal stress. Well, from, you know, from, from what I uh, understand about your background, you, um, uh, you know, you, you gain this experience uh, through you being a, a graduate of Harvard Medical School, uh, and then you did your adult and child psychiatry uh, training, integrative, um, I see, in integrative psychoanalysis, um, or sorry, integrative psych psychoanalyst, and um, your work through the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute. 
um, and you continue to, to be involved with, uh, with the medical school and with the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute, I, I believe. Is that correct? That is correct. Teaching. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Teaching. Awesome. Well, yes. great. Well, I think that it would be good for us to talk, you know, kind of go back to, um, you know, you spoke about a, f a few of the, the different models, but going back to um, this, this idea of optimal stress. Um, really, I think that this is a powerful message for listeners who are, you know, um, either young professionals or people who are maybe parents that are also working or, uh, you know, uh, medical professionals, you know, we, we learn so much about kind of people being overstressed these days, how people need to, uh, get rid of their stress, be, you know, have stress reduction techniques. Um, and, and it, it's a way of talking about stress like it truly is um, a bad thing, like it is, you know, poison, and then it needs to be reduced down to zero. Um, could you, you know, kind of expand a little bit more on this idea of optimal stress? Um, and how is it that, uh, you know, we can face challenges? How is it that people can be supported through the challenges? And, uh, you know, specifically, how can it be, um, how can stress be viewed as a way to, uh, you know, as a critical way for, for human growth and self-actualization? Yeah. I like that. Good. So um, intuitively, one might imagine that to get from point A to point B, um, it would be a straight line linear progression. But again, as I'd referenced earlier, uh, come to find out in real life, whether it's the developmental process, a little one growing up, or the writing process, or the life process, or the therapeutic process, it's never really quite that simple. Um, it's, it's really more the, the idea that if we are presented with periodic challenge, um, then, um, and we can process and integrate and work that through, then we really will end up stronger at our broken places. Mm -hmm. Now, the the metaphor that I have um, that I use is um, the concept of the sandpile model of chaos theory, and I represent that with this hourglass. Um, basically, um, let's think of the underlying system, the patient, um, as being this gradually evolving sandpile. And these grains of sand that are being continuously added um, are environmental stressors. Now, interestingly, the grains of sand will initially build, make the sand pile evolve and it'll get bigger and bigger. But inevitably, we don't know when, this is sort of why it's more kind of chaos theory, we don't know when, we just know that eventually there will be some grains of sand, some environmental stressors that will prompt a minor avalanche of, of the sand pile. Um, and sort of like, whoops, and that's the disruption in response to the challenge. But then in response to the ongoing input of stressful, uh, of stressors, the, there's enough resilience in the underlying system um, and enough support that the sand pile will reconstitute itself with admittedly some scars, but it'll, it'll evolve to a higher level with scars. But that being then the developmental process, 
life process, the therapeutic process, that if it's just uh, smooth sailing, um, so um, using a sort of fancy uh, sentence here, but I'll explain it. Um, Charles Krebs, a neuroscientist and healer, uh, has talked about how uh, chaotic systems, self-organizing open systems, resist change. And in fact, we often notice that our patients will want to get better, say they want to get better, try to get better, and yet they're not. And so the idea here is because self-organizing chaotic systems resist perturbation, you have to provide enough uh, impetus, enough of a challenge to the system that there will be at least an initial disruption. Um, but then tapping into the underlying resilience, I believe profoundly in the underlying resilience of patients. And uh, in response to the ongoing support from the therapist, they will reconstitute at a higher level, these ongoing cycles of disruption, repair, disruption, repair, and evolving to ever higher levels of flexibility and adaptability. And in fact, we talk about the Goldilocks uh, principle, we can apply that here. Mm -hmm. So if there is too much stress, traumatic stress, that's more than the system can process and integrate. Mm -hmm. If there's no stress at all, then there is no impetus for there to be any change. It's just a reinforcing of the status quo, which might of the system, which might well be dysfunctional, the patients mm -hmm. there in the treatment. And if there's no stressor, the support feels good, feels good, feels good. On the other hand, there's no real impetus for change. And now just briefly referencing a concept that uh, Donald Hebb, uh, a neuropsychologist way back in the 1940s introduced, and he said, neurons in the brain that fire together, wire together. Mm -hmm. So if indeed the patient is in a stuck place and in a lot of pain, and all we do is support, 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 um, and empathize and support, support, then in fact, if anything, it makes those neurons that are firing together, wiring together, and the rut even and ever deeper. So mm -hmm. it feels good to be supported, but that's not always. Sometimes, I mean, it's great to be supported, but if we're talking about trying to bring about deep, profound, enduring, characterological change, probably we need a little more than just support. And we need yeah. optimal challenge. Well, as, uh, as Kanye West says, that the don't kill me can only make me stronger. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, and I, I think that um, it's a really, it's a really uh, powerful uh, idea. And it, it reminds me a little bit of, I, um, I, I did this CBT training uh, when I was a medical student. And um, uh, one thing that, um, this is with Dr. David Burns, and he said, uh, uh, he, he had the, the magic button, he would call it, which is where uh, you would uh, present to the patient the opportunity to press a magic button that would make all of their stress go away. Oh yeah. Or a magic button that would make all of their, you know, anxiety troubles. go away. Troubles yeah. go away. Right. And, um, but specifically with this anxiety of stress, you know, if I had a magic button that you could press to make all of your stress go away, would you press it? Often the patient says yes. And I still do use this sometimes. And then I say, well, are you sure about that? Because, you know, uh -huh. 
with without the struts, um, you know, you could picture yourself on Staying a stock forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could picture yourself, for instance, if you're a mom and uh, it's a Monday morning and you're perfectly not stressed and you're sort of in this Zen state, um, maybe, you know, sitting uh, on the floor of your, your living room, you know, smelling essential oils and sort of, you know, doing very well. Well, well, what problems might that cause, right? Well, maybe your kids wouldn't get to school on time, you know, maybe, uh, uh, you know, or if you were, you know, someone else who, who just were in a, a totally uh, non-stress state, maybe you would forget to pay the bills or you would um, not feel sort of the push to go uh, oh, to, like to work on, on that day. And so what is it that the stress is doing for you? The stress is, it's an impetus and it's a healthy impetus. It's the incentive, right? Impetus, right. Yeah. right. And it's all well and good. I never know how to say Eckhart Tolle or Eckhart Tolle, but he's asked, you know, the power of now and the present moment, you know, if you're just always like, oh, home, home and meditating and it's all good, like you said, sort of like, that's good. But what about paying the bills? And what about getting the kids to school? And what about right. going to work? Yeah. And so, and so yeah. instead of the magic button sort of model where you press it and all goes away, it's rather we, we change it to a dial, which is, you know, if you could oh, dial, yeah. dial it back, what would be the correct amount? Where is it now? And where would you Just like it to be? I like that. Yeah. And I think it's very, very similar to what you're saying. And that, so, um, you know, uh, I think for people that are listening that feel like, oh, I, I have been really stressed, um, you know, and they're thinking about um, dialing it back a little bit more. Um, that's where maybe some of these the, the stress relief sort of techniques can come in. Um, but I think for people that are facing, you know, everyday stresses, I think it's also helpful and healthy for them to hear and to know and reflect upon, you know, that a certain degree of, of stress can be healthy. And so I think, uh, you know, one thing I, I, that'd be interesting for us to talk about a bit is hormesis. For people who uh, aren't familiar with hormesis, what does that mean? And how does stress fit into a hormesis sort of model? Oh, perfect. All right. So hormesis, I think, is derived from maybe the Greek word, whatever, for to excite. And basically what it means is um, a biphasic response to a stressor, to a biological agent, meaning to some, at some dose, it's going to be a positive response and at another dose, a negative reaction. So here's an example. So exercise. So exercise is a good thing, right? One would think it is a good thing. But if you do too much exercise, then the body begins to break down. Now, if you don't do any exercise at all, that's not good. But if you exercise on that dial, just the sort of optimal amount, of course, how do you find the optimal amount? So you experiment. Um, that's the best. And if you uh, exercise too much, that's not, that's not good. So there's a balance. Um, so hormesis just recognizes that stress, as we've been saying all along, at a certain dose is going to be too much. It'll be toxic. At another dose, it'll be more incentivizing, incentivizing and impetus, provide impetus. Mm -hmm. So hormesis is, uh, or how about this? Botox. So botulinum toxin is one of the most potent toxins available. And at a certain dose, not, it's toxic, poisonous. At another dose, a lower dose, it's Botox. And people use that and with some success. Or as uh, 
Hippocrates, right, said uh, the difference between a medication and a poison is the dosage thereof. Mm. In essence, he's talking about hormesis. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an important something uh, to keep in mind. Um, mm. So um, a good thing, to, there can be too much of a good thing. Um, that's not so good. And a bad thing at a low enough dose can often be a good thing. Mm. In fact, they've found that, I think this was uh, Duke University Medical Center, that if you exercise, no, yeah, if you exercise for 40 minutes a day, then you can get by aerobic exercise. You can get by on 40 minutes less of sleep that night because the body will adaptively reconstitute. Um, and another one is a, a treatment uh, for depression can be once a week, depriving yourself of the second half of your night's sleep. Um, and then the body, uh, like from 3 to 7 a.m. once mm -hmm. a week, the body then will sort of rise to the occasion and reconstitute, and there'll be a mental clarity and less depression because you're mobilizing. There's the impetus, you're mobilizing. So it's just hormesis and the concept of optimal stress versus traumatic stress versus no stress at all. It's just something to keep in mind as part of the way we can evolve from uh, this to a more nuanced, uh, balanced, integrated, uh, uh, e evolved place. Mm -hmm. and, and admittedly, I mean, the sand pile model here, um, there might well be scars that you um, acquire along the way, but, but the infrastructure is much more solid, stronger right. in the broken places. Yes, Kanye West and Kelly Clarkson and all sorts of people. Yeah. yeah, right. Well, I think sort of the last thing that I wanted to clarify before going into that is sort of, you know, then this idea of moving from rigidity to flexibility. You know, a lot of people, um, they feel uh, rigid in their their fears, rigid in their avoidance of, of, of stressors. Um, yes. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, um, kind of fleshing out a little bit more of what it takes to move somebody from rigidity to flexibility. Um, I know it's, it's not a, a straight line, like you said, and there's these uh, sort of healing cycles that happen. Um, but how is it that, uh, that, that you know when to kind of challenge somebody more versus support them more? And, and, and how does that um, uh, re relate to flexibility? I love that. I love that. So first, it's important that the therapist be flexible. Um, we at our end are ever busy in our minds holding this sort of dialectical tension between, you know, thinking about just what they could have and how their lives could go if they could but make healthier choices on the one hand. And on the other hand, and, and wanting to challenge that a little bit because, oh my God, you know, and on the other hand, wanting to honor and respect the choices that they are making, in, in which case we would support. So at our end, we're ever busy trying to decide when do we challenge and when do we support? So I, I think about it as sort of back to medical school when I used to think about your fingers on the pulse and here it'd be the therapist ever attuned uh, with her fingers on the pulse of the level of the patient's anxiety. And, and again, 
that was something I'd learned about way back. Um, the ego made anxious gets defensive. And, you know, I learned that in sort of like 50 years ago. I was like, yeah, yeah that's good. That's good. But I sort of like in more recently, I've come to appreciate sort of like, yeah, if the patient becomes too anxious. Now, how do we know well, we're busy observing? And there's something I think the words are, I think I finally figured out that the words are interoception. That's a big fancy word and proprioception. But in essence, we attend to our own sort of internal embodied experiences. We're sitting with the patient and, and our sense of if they're getting a little more anxious and they're breathing a little more rapidly or they're talking more rapidly or they're moving around. So in which case we know we should sort of rein it in a little bit and provide a little more support. It's sort of like a dance that we do, ever respecting and honoring that a certain amount, that dial that you said, a certain amount of stress, optimal stress, yes, providing impetus, incentive for there to be a, a destabilization of the dysfunctional status quo. But if they get too anxious, then we need to come in with the support. So it's a back and forth over the course of a session, a 45 or 50 minute session, we will have gone back and forth, back and forth 70 times, ever busy assessing their level of anxiety. And ego made anxious gets defensive. And, and so we want to go from defensive need to self-protect and so on to adaptive capacity to tolerate some anxiety as part of evolving and moving forward, advancing from rigidity to flexibility, from defense to adaptation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, for people that are listening, you, you may have heard of some of the um, ego defenses before, um, but they're I'm actually uh, just just pulling up a list right now because uh, it's it's such an important thing to uh, to to reflect upon and to try to you know start to identify in yourself because um, okay. it it can be a, a great a great signal to yourself of am I stressing am am I stretching past the the healthy limits also of yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of of my stressors so um, you know some some classic ones are you know um, so projection that's uh, if um, you are you're kind of placing your your mind or things that you're um, thinking about or opinions, opinions that you have and placing them onto other people. Um, so, Often negative ones. Yeah. So um, you know, if you don't like somebody, so I don't like uh, you know this this guy named Joe, and then you you say, oh, that dude hates me. I know. I I know that Joe <laughs> hates me, but you know you. There's actually no evidence whether or not he hates you. So if you you see yourself doing something like that, um, you know, similarly, there's uh, regression, um, you know, going back to an earlier stage of de development, maybe becoming kind of um, more uh, tearful and kind of using less words to describe um, what 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 you're experiencing emotionally or super dependent super dependent super dependent yeah exactly um you know uh in anxiety so uh you could uh see displacement that would be where you uh are you take out your anger on some someone or something else you know so road rage you see yourself road raging um and you know you're or you you're come home and kick the cat yeah exactly come home and kick the cat um 
you know, that, that would be another example of it. So all of these are, you know, just a few examples of some of the ego defenses. And like Martha was saying, um, they're, they're signals of that. Maybe uh, you're being pushed a little too far or a little bit outside of that window of hormesis. And yeah, 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 yeah. Window in. tolerance. Yeah, that's yeah. good. That's okay. good. I like that. And, and parenthetically, the defenses can also include not, not yes, thank you, dissociation and projection and <coughs> rationalization, intellectualization, absolutely. And can also just be sometimes if you can feel in your body that you're getting kind of triggered, mm -hmm. that it's sort of the feeling is too much and you just sort of uh, want to go eat. That'd be a defense, you know, when it's not a meal time, you know, and you want to smoke your cigarette or go drink or uh, take a nap. Some of these are, I mean, certainly I know I probably take a few extra naps. That oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, and, and to be aware of, to pay attention to your own level of internal tension and anxiety mm -hmm. so that you can self-regulate um, and, and, um, and take care of yourself, learn to sort of take care of yourself a little better. Mm. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's been something that I've been reflecting on lately is sort of this, um, I think, especially among kind of high achieving sort of, you know, uh, employed, hardworking people, there's this sort of, uh, robot-like perfectionistic sort of sense that people have of themselves as they come into adulthood, you know, and, and, um, and we all forget that we're, uh, you know, that there's, that we are a child at one point and that our, the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain for people listening, you know, that is so important in um, future planning and in inhibiting sort of or having control over some of your emotional uh, sort of impulses um, that that stops growing at a certain point. Your prefrontal cortex does, you know, it it stops or slows down its, its growth at a certain point. And so, uh, you know, it's humans don't really reach it. They're, they're never, they're never able to reach this perfect sort of, you know, machine-like um, efficiency and to, uh, to continue to re reflect on your inner child, the, the inner um, imperfect, um, you know, little a creature inside flawed. of you flawed. flawed. Yeah. Um, and it, evolving it, ultimately to a place of acceptance, mm -hmm. sober, mature acceptance that, that it's good enough. Right. The Winnicott's concept of not only the object world, the people out there being good enough, mm -hmm. but that you yourself are good enough. But boy, that's a hard one, isn't it? It is. And I think, you know, yeah. right now there's a lot of sort of superficial self-care sort of suggestions or recommendations yeah. out there. Yeah. And people have some subconscious sort of resistance to that idea. Uh, yeah. If they're, if they're a busy, hardworking person that wants to achieve a lot and somebody's saying, Oh, you know, your mental health would be better if you just took more meditate every day, meditate every day, take some, you take long, warm baths every day or diet. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, um, those things can be good, but they're not always good. And yeah. it's good to always have our finger on the dial yeah. of where's our yeah, stress like and our growth. Yeah. And yeah. when it's do we need, in. when do we need the self-care to bring ourselves back, but also when do we need the impetus of the stressor to kind of move ourselves forward? Nick, thank you. I mean, Let's just say I, I feel really understood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I'm glad. Well, yeah, exactly. That's I, well said. That was beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I think uh, maybe 
the, the last thing that I really wanted to sort of round out here before we uh, run out of time is this idea of therapeutic memory consolidation. You mentioned it before. Um, would you would you mind sort of just again for for a non therapist, you know, regular person? Um, how would you describe therapeutic memory consolidation, and and, and how can um, that be beneficial in their lives? Okay, good. Thank you. And actually, this is a concept that a lot of therapists don't know about either. Um, and it's a relatively new concept. Mm -hmm. At one point, it was thought that um, uh, uh, mem memories, especially traumatic ones, are forever like diamonds. And once you've had the experience, that's it. It gets stored in long-term memory and, and in the body, and it's always there, and there's no changing it. And, th and there's some people who still believe, quite frankly, that once you've had that, um, that's it. Um, but though you, so therapeutic memory consolidation, that's something that the cognitive neuroscientists in their laboratories have been studying uh, with animals and with people uh, for the last 10, 15 years. And um, some uh, forward-thinking, neuroscientifically inclined clinicians like Bruce Ecker and David Feinstein um, have been sort of um, working on with their patients in their offices. And the, the idea is that there is a four to six hour reconsolidation window. The cognitive neuroscientists tell us from the research that they've been doing in the lab. They use fancy neuroimaging techniques, something called optogenetics, functional MRIs, um, and, and all sorts of fancy sort of uh, neurological imaging stuff that can map out what's happening in the brain when a thought is being thought, a feeling is being felt, a memory is being remembered. And what they've discovered is that there's this four to six hour window of opportunity where when, when a traumatic memory, say, is being re-experienced, retrieved, re relived, there are these cells in the brain, in addition to neurons, there are these supporting cells, these neuroimmune, those are fancy words, but neuroimmune cells called glial cells. And glia comes from the Greek word for glue. So there are these glial cells that actually, when the traumatic memory is being thought and re-experienced in an embodied way, the glial cells contract, their processes, their, their, they contract to allow for the the impulse uh, to the nerve impulse to go from the pre to the post uh, synaptic membrane. Um, and if, so this is where therapeutic memory reconsolidation comes in. If the patient is re experiencing, reliving, refeeling the trauma in the context of the supportive therapy relationship. So it's, it's, it's the anxiety for sure, for sure, but reliving, re-experiencing and articulating what that feels like. If they can then, this is interesting, patient and therapist together co-create this. Um, and there are certain uh, uh, act, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, uh, IFS, um, um, DBT, CBT, uh, EMDR, uh, AEDP, these are all fancy acronyms for treatments that rely upon therapeutic memory reconsolidation. But if indeed there is introduced against the backdrop of reliving and re-experiencing the old bad, something new and good, and it's forcibly 
and, and, and dramatically and repeatedly introduced the vision of or the experience of something new good. So old bad, new good, old bad, new good, or more specifically, some old bad narratives. I'm helpless, I'm powerless, I'm no good, I'm a loser, I'm nothing. Um, um, and, but then uh, the envisioning uh, something different, something better, something more, much, much more better. Um, and then taking ownership of the need to change how one positions oneself in relation to the trauma and in relation to one's life. This takes a lot of work. And then committing to acting in alignment with that. So if you juxtapose, and it's called creating a violation of expectation, a disconfirming mismatch experience between old, bad, new, bad, old, bad, new, bad, old, bad, new, bad. And in fact, something like EMDR is sort of ever busy. Their language is a little different, but left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain. The right brain re-experiencing and remembering the old, bad, traumatic, whatever. And then the left brain bringing to bear the analytic wisdom of the left brain. Again, put a little sim simplistically, but left, right, left, right, left, right. So that you're slowly and gradually reprocessing, you know, EMDR. The eye movement desensitization and reprocessing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, similar to uh, REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, where at night, you know, you go to bed with a problem and in the morning you awaken with a solution because left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, and you're bringing to bear the best of both sides of the brain. So in essence, the all-encompassing sort of uh, unifying principle is therapeutic memory reconsolidation, that during that four to six hours, that's what the scientists have found in the lab, during the four to six hour reconsolidation window, there is opportunity for an updating of the old bad maladaptive, necessary at one point to survive, but no longer serving the patient well, but an updating and making more reality-based and, and more positive uh, and more empowering narratives, um, such that um, the old bad narratives are actually replaced. Now, this is hard. This is hard. But the thought is that they can actually be replaced by new, good, more adaptive, more empowering narratives. Mm. It takes a lot of work. Um, co-created. This is where patient and therapist work together. They agree that, God damn it, you know, and this is my model five. They, they have the awareness, acceptance, accountability, authenticity, but analysis paralysis. They haven't gotten those last 10 pounds off. They haven't been able to reach out to their boss for pay raise. They haven't been able to sit down to complete their dissertation. They haven't been able to move forward with asking her to marry him. And so this is where uh, it involves uh, really envisioning possibilities. So the name of my most recent book, Lifting from Soren Kierkegaard, is called Understanding Life Backward, but Living It Forward, that I lifted, colon, and this is mine, analyzing to understand, but envisioning possibilities to incentivize action. So you have to have the vision of the possibility of something different and better. And in fact, what they've found at the Cleveland Clinic, they've done studies and elsewhere, that if you visualize something like a physical exercise or the Olympians, you'll see them sort of with their eyes closed and they're moving their head around and they're doing their figure skating routine or they're doing their pole vault or they're doing their gymnastics, um, that if you visualize something and really focus on envisioning something and back and forth and doing it, that's 
almost as effective as actually doing it. And that they found that you can actually, if this is cool, strengthen your muscles uh, by just sort of mental practice without actually, <laughs> without actually even doing the exercising. And so let me say, this is where earlier I had referenced Charles Krebs, the neuroscientist healer, who had said, self-organizing chaotic systems resist perturbation. Well, he, and this is, he writes about this. Uh, he's somebody here in Boston and I, he's a friend of mine. He writes about this. So I'm not telling tales out of school here. He had been in a scuba diving accident that was horrible and he got the type two bends. So he was actually paralyzed like from whatever, some level of whatever in his spine on down. So he couldn't walk. He was in a wheelchair. He was in Australia and he was basically left on a back ward just to sort of till he died eventually. But he, a neuroscientist by training, he envisioned, this is true, this is a true story. He envisioned the um, transmission of nerve impulses from the brain down to his legs. And over the course of months, he was able to get the muscles to twitch a little bit. And eventually some years later, and he writes about this in his book, A Revolutionary Way of Thinking, um, I think it's called, he can now, he walks. However, um, he has said that if he has to count to 10 while he's walking, he'll fall down because he has to focus his energies on moving his muscles. So it, it highlights that if we set the intention, so my model five, which is a, a quantum neuroscientific approach to um, you know, getting people off the dime and, and moving forward in their lives and taking action and getting out of their rut, their refractory inertia, that if you really put effort into envisioning a new, better way of being, it takes a lot of work, uh, but you recognize, so envision, and then I talk about it as repositioning. You take ownership of your need, therefore, to reposition how you, how you position yourself in relation to the traumas, in relation to your traumatic childhood, and so on. And then you commit to acting in alignment. That the, and, and you're doing that and superimposing that, uh, juxtaposing that um, on, on back and forth, back and forth with the old bad. I'm powerless. I'm helpless. I'll never lose the weight. I'll never ask for the promotion. I'll never find a partner. And you do this. Eventually, you can therapeutic memory lock in, reconsolidate um, a new, more empowering, more adaptive, more reality-based narrative. That's incredible. And the reason I call it, that's the neuroscientific piece. And the reason I call it quantum is the idea that in the quantum realm, which of course, like who in the world understands it? I mean, even Einstein didn't, right? It's spooky action at a distance, he called it. But that in the quantum world, anything is possible. Or Henry Ford had said, if you believe you can or can't, you're right. So it, it's really about instead of our history is our destiny. Model five is about creating our destiny going forward based on what we can envision for ourselves. Yes, it takes a lot of work. Um, envisioning possibilities. So, and again, I'll just say this real quick, like, so in the quantum realm, there are waves um, and particles and the waves, invisible waves hold infinite potential, uh, limitless possibilities. But the observer effect has it that when you observe the wave and 
set an intention, those are my words, but the observer effect it's called, then the wave will collapse into a particle, a finite particle that's real. And so there are infinite possibilities. If you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. But if you believe you can and you really put effort and energy into it, then you collapse into a particle and then you can proceed, reposition yourself and commit to sort of making some major changes in your life. Mm. And so that's why my psychodynamic synergy paradigm, thank you for kind of letting me get that whole thing said, is for, um, a, a, um, awareness, acceptance, accountability, authenticity, and from analysis paralysis to action and actualizing the potential. And yes, it takes a tremendous amount of work, but optimal stress is at the heart of it all and come to find out therapeutic memory reconsolidation, left, right, left, right, left, right, old, bad, new, good, old, bad, new, good. Replace mm -hmm. old, bad with new, good. So like on your computer, instead of it being um, save as when you do the new good, right? And the old bad. So you have an old bad document and you do a lot of edits and now you save it as a new good one. You still have the old bad one, but this is more like save. You mm -hmm. had the old bad. Thank you. Yeah. You, you uh, revise it and so on and you save it. And now mm -hmm. that's what's there. The old one's gone. You eradicate, you eradicate the old bad. That's what therapeutic memory reconsolidation is about. There are a lot of non-believers out there, but I know that for myself, um, there have been moments where, I mean, they're few and far between, but, and I'm, I'm working on this, and then, you know, David Ecker writes about, David Feinstein and Bruce Ecker write about it, but moments where if you really set the intention, now I don't believe that you can necessarily set the intention for global peace, although God knows would that we could do that, and there's certainly people who feel that if we all set the intention for global peace, we can have that, but I believe that there are things within ourselves that if we set the intention, so, uh, it, it, it's a combination of mindfully being attuned to what's going on in the body and then setting the intention for something new and better that then there is real hope. So mm -hmm. model five is really a very hope infused model. Yeah. And, and probably an important component of being able to manifest whatever it is that you're envisioning is to truly believe that, that you're, that it's capable of, of happening. And so something like, you know, world peace, there, oh, there may be some, there may we be don't some, really believe in the moment right, that, that can happen. Right. Because you know that it, it involves a lot more than just yourself, but, <laughs> um, but it is, I think it's always such an important thing for people to continue to hear what you were just saying is the true neuroscience, um, the true, um, you know, uh, both theoretical and scientific evidence of the power of envisioning a future for ourselves. And, and, and also just the adaptability of the brain mm -hmm. that in response to new information and new experience, the dynamic nature of memory, the adaptability of the brain, we're ever busy adapting and incorporating new information in response to input coming in from the outside that's 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 the, the brain is ever busy growing mm -hmm. and evolving and we just need to think about it in terms of some of the early on unmastered traumas and if we can reposition um yes yeah, so that it can i love your word ultimately manifest mm -hmm. and it does take effort and you have to be able to believe you picked up on the most important thing of all that you have to believe that it's possible and if you say sort of like i really want to lose those 10 pounds but listen, I've lost them a hundred times and I gained them back. I don't think I can do it. But I mean, I want to do it. Sort of like, I'll try. So sort of like, oh, that's not going to do it. You yeah. have to sort of embrace it and take it on. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah.
Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I wish that we had more time, uh, but perhaps we'll have to speak again at another time, Martha. This has been really great. Well, thank you, Nick. And I want to say, as always happens when there's sort of a really wonderful uh, interchange, I mean, I feel that I have sort of grown and evolved, and I love your the dial concept and the manifesting, and and I and I love the emphasis what you've picked up on in this, and it's been it's been special for me. So I thank you, Nick. I really enjoyed this. Hey listeners, some of you have so kindly asked how you can support the podcast. You can help by supporting us on Patreon, so please kindly find our Patreon link in the show notes. You can also support us by leaving a review, so please let me know what you think about the show by leaving a review on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook as Dr. Nissen. And it's important to note that this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. And the use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is content of this podcast and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.